Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology and Society. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Raph DeBont about his new book, Stations in the Field, a history of place-based animal research, 1870 to 1930. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Now, this is a book that takes us through a number of case studies, um, all locally based, as a way to help us understand the importance of place-based research, and specifically research at biological field stations in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And over the course of this book, what he does is use these very local um, case studies, which are very richly elaborated and very richly described, and some of which feature really, really fascinating um, and sometimes quite hilarious directors and characters um, who are responsible for producing um, and making these field stations go and work. And from these individual local case studies, he weaves a story about what he calls a station movement in contradistinction to what's often been called a laboratory movement um, in roughly this period. And part of this station movement involved some pretty dramatic transformations and changes that came from these localities but also transcended them. And these include transformations, as you'll hear about in the hour to come, in notions of experiment and experimentalism, in ways of looking, in the way that Um, amateurs and practical naturalists are central to and are engaged in the work of field sciences and in notions of nature, what it is, where it is, how it is, and how it means. So over the course of these several chapters, um, what we do is we learn about, and he brings us into some really wonderful um, cases and some wonderful places Um, And collectively, you'll come away as um, I hope you'll come away with, I certainly did, with some kind of a renewed sense of an an appreciation for not only the field and the importance of the field in the history of science, but also a notion of what it means to talk about and to talk with something called the field. So it's a great book. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you have a chance to read it. And it really was um, great fun talking with him about it. So thank you for listening, um, as always, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Raph DeBont about his new book, Stations in the Field. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Raph, and thank you very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Thanks for having me. So let's start by talking a little bit about how you came to work in the field, and specifically, what brought you to history of science as your field of study? Uh, Well, as a Graduate, I, I um, worked in, in cultural history, mm-hmm. uh, and I've written uh, a graduate thesis, like they have them in, in Belgium, uh, on, an, uh, on an anthropologist. It was really a sort of biography, and that got me uh, interested in, in the history of science, really. Uh, I didn't take any history of science courses during my, my history training. But it was, it was really this, this biography that got me triggered. Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, a PhD position at the University of Leuven in Belgium where I uh, could work on the history of evolutionary theory and uh, the reception of evolutionary theory in Belgium. And that's what I did for my dissertation. Mm. Uh, and that's what got me into uh, the history of science, really. So the book we're talking about today focuses on the history of biological field stations in the late 19th and into the early to mid-20th centuries. So how did you come to focus on this particular topic and also decide to make a book-length object out of it? Yes, I I think my my interest for uh, field biology uh, came sort of naturally after the uh, evolutionary theory uh, book, 
because I encountered quite a lot of field biologists uh, in in this context, and I, I got increasingly interested in what they what their sort of day to day activities were. And when I looked around a little bit, there was, uh, of course, there was quite some literature on field biology, but relatively limited uh, literature on what happened in in Europe at the turn of the century, and even less about what happened in these field stations, which were uh, which seemed to be on the basis of the sources I read rather important places. So I got intrigued by those places uh, and read a little bit more about them. And, and that's sort of how this develops from, from a sort of postdoc uh, proposal. So why has the history of biological field stations, since they are, um, I think you've demonstrated in the book, they are really important. Why have they received comparatively, comparatively little attention um, by historians of science? Uh, that's a good question. I think, um, of course, there's a, a, a long tradition uh, in, in the history of science to be, um, uh, or, or to study uh, laboratories. There, uh, also in, in science and technology studies, obviously, there's a whole field of lab studies. Uh, particularly people interested in the 19th century tend to see this as the, as the time period of the laboratory. Um, people interested in uh, slightly earlier periods have been working a lot about natural history museums. And then there were also quite a lot of people working on, uh, on, on field work, on expeditions. But those more in-between places like uh, uh, field stations have had until recently uh, relatively little attention. Although I must say that since let's... Um, well, the last decade, there is an increasing intention, uh, interest for it. Uh, so I'm certainly not the only one who's, who's written on it uh, over the last uh, 10 years. But it's, it's relatively recent, I would say, this, this interest. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about the kind of work that the book is doing is it takes these notions of the field and the lab and it undermines any sense of a clear or clean dichotomy between them. So it's really doing a lot of work, I think quite successfully, in showing the ways in which these two categories are not hermetically sealed, um, very distinct uh, spaces and concepts, but are really being shaped by and are shaping one another in this period in really, really interesting ways. So the book looks at the role played by biological field stations in what you call the rise of zoological place-based research. And you argue in the book that the stations were actually really important. Um, and in part, they're important in a way that I just sort of alluded to in generating new kinds of scientific practice, in generating new theories, and in generating new networks. And we're going to see this play out um, over the course of several case studies in the book um, and very briefly over the course of the conversation today. Now, the book itself is also, as you describe it here in the introduction, um, what you call an exercise in place-based research. It focuses on a limited set of case studies in Europe. And you say here, I love this, we hope to understand turn-of-the-century zoologists by studying them in their natural habitat. So it really, you know, it's taking a, um, a trope from the book itself. So can you say a little bit about your choice of case studies? Um, why did you settle on the case studies you did? And um, specifically, were there any major case studies that you thought about including in the book, but that didn't make it in for any um, interesting reason? Okay. Um, well, there, there are several, um, uh, several reasons why I selected the cases I, I, I selected. Uh, I wanted to have a little a little bit of um, different types of research into the book. So there's one, uh, or there's two that, that are really marine stations, but are very different kinds of marine stations. Then there's one which is uh, devoted to freshwater zoology. And then there's one uh, which is an ornithological station. So I wanted to have different uh, different animals that were studied in these, in these places. Um, and then I wanted to have stations that developed uh, field-oriented research because I wanted to uh, counter a bit the, the stereotype that these um, stations, these field stations were only outhoused laboratories. That's something that has been written by, by some authors and I wanted to go a bit against that. So I, I took um, 
examples that really illustrate that um, a lot of fieldwork and, and, and innovative fieldwork was also performed at these stations. Uh, and then I, I try to have next to diversity of of species being studied, I also wanted to, to have a diversity of social uh, environments in which these uh, stations uh, operated. So um, and so the, the directors of these of these different stations could be uh, university professors. In, in 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 one case, in another case, it's it's more. Uh, a huntsman uh, that tries to set up a new uh, way of doing ornithology. In another case, it's more a science journalist who wants to uh, uh, develop plankton research. So uh, I wanted to have a bit of diversity in, 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 in different ways. And then um, another point that I thought would be interesting is to choose uh, cases in sort of the heartland of Europe. Where they where they developed first, because usually when we think of field stations, we might think of of places that are really uh, remote and and uh, somewhere in the wilderness. Whereas I wanted to show here that uh, also they should be uh, they should be reachable by by the people using them, uh, and and in a sense they well in industrial Europe of the of the late nineteenth century there was no no real wilderness in the American sense of the word. Um, so that's also why I took uh, examples from Germany, France. These are the places where they really first developed uh, in, in as part of a really modernizing world, I would say. So that's also why I, I, I picked these, these cases. Now you describe, and, and sort of getting into the first chapter, you describe <laughs> the ways in which um, Germany and France were developing field stations in the 1870s and 1880s, and they're actually doing so in really different kinds of ways. So to kind of get our feet wet, right, in the in the um, nuts and bolts of what's going on here, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, what are some of the most important ways early on here in the late 19th century that what the French are doing and what the Germans are doing in terms of establishing um, field stations um, yeah. is different? Mm-hmm. So um, in in France, uh, there was a lot of um, initiative taken from from the universities, and they also uh, tried, therefore, to have, have originally marine stations, later also other types of stations, relatively close to to the university, so that university professors could go there with their students to do field work. Um, so it was relatively uh, top down. It was uh, it, it was these uh, um, well known professors who had their own field station, usually also partially uh, sponsored by themselves privately, partially sponsored by by the universities. Whereas what Germans did was was something quite different, at least in in this time period. Um, there was less of an initiative from from universities, but more, um, let's say, um, um, people who, uh, who on, on on their own, on, on, on sort of private initiative, set up uh, set up these stations. The most well known is, is the one in Naples, set up by Anton Dorn, um, and who went to to the Mediterranean and. To, to, to set up these, these stations. It was part of a sort of long-term tradition in the German lands to travel uh, to Italy, the Italian Fahrt, this, this was called. So that's a, that's a long tradition in the 19th century. Uh, and um, people would do this travel for cultural reasons, but also for scientific reasons. Uh, but it, it was obviously very complicated when you traveled to Italy to to do research there because you had to take everything uh, on the train or whichever way you wanted to travel. Um, and so these field stations were really set up to ac- accommodate uh, traveling uh, German scientists so that they, well, they, that they didn't have to take everything and that they would find all their glasswork and all their instruments and so on at hand when they, uh, when they arrived at the Mediterranean. Um, this also meant that the, the people who went there weren't, for instance, the, the, the students of the, of the directors of these, of these stations. Um, so that there was a, a, a rather different social atmosphere, I would say, than, than in the French stations. Uh, 
Now, the second chapter focuses on Anton Dorn's work um, in Naples, and you really bring us into the station. It's it's the first kind of really substantive, um, nitty-gritty kind of bringing us into the details um, case study of many case studies that are really wonderful in this book. So let's go in there to kind of explore around this a little bit. So chapter two takes us into the Stazione Zoologica in Naples, and this is one of the biggest, one of the most influential, and one of the best equipped stations of the late 19th century. So it's quite a, um, a nice place to start. Now, it's founded by this German zoologist that you just mentioned, Dorn, um, and to kind of get a sense of who he was and how he's coming to this work, can you say a little bit about him for listeners who may not be familiar with him, and maybe specifically, kind of what do we need to understand and know about him to understand what brought him to the founding of this station in Naples? Yes, so um, he... Um he, had, he was a, he was trained as a zoologist. He, from, he was from a relatively wealthy background, uh, and he uh, was a student of Ernst Haeckel, which is one of the or leading uh, Darwinians in in Germany in the late nineteenth century. And he was also really inspired by the work of of uh, Haeckel, but he also fell out with Haeckel and was relatively. Uh, uh, it became clear relatively early on that he wouldn't be able to have an academic career in Germany, so he tried to find a, a place for himself. And setting up this station was a way was a way to do so. And his uh, his plans for this station were very very ambitious. He really wanted to have a general uh, biology that that was developed there. So this included, for instance, evolutionary morphology, like it was developed by Haeckel. So the, the study of uh, the, the development of the embryo and then um, making uh, evolutionary conclusions on the basis of that, but also physiology, but also the study of uh, life habits of animals and so on. Uh, and his idea was um, to set up this station really in the in the center of of German tourism <laughs> of the time of the late nineteenth century in in Naples. This was a place where everybody would go to if they visited Italy. Um, and he uh, found money eventually for, for really establishing this huge, this huge building uh, with a, a great aquarium on the ground floor. And the idea was also that uh, tourists would visit the aquarium and that this would partially pay for the, for the, for the equipment and for the infrastructure. And then on the uh, second floor, there would be uh, laboratories uh, where uh, visitors could work. And Dorn had invented this very uh, in ingenious system that he would rent out tables yeah. at, this, uh, at this station. So, for instance, the Belgian government or uh, some, some society could rent uh, a table and could send a, a scientist to, to work there. Um, now, now, what I try to show in the ch chapter is that because of the, the way he organized this station and also because of the place where it was located, he stimulated a lot of research in a particular direction, so particularly laboratory work, but it also, at least to a certain extent, undermined more field-oriented work um, and that this has to do partially with the fact that it was in the well in this in in the city. It was near the Mediterranean, but it was not uh, Mediterranean as such. Well, not really accessible. The Mediterranean doesn't have tides, so you can't study in the tide pools. Um, it was uh, very well equipped, but it's also dissuaded uh, visiting scientists to, to to go outside. It was really a very efficient place. You could. Uh, um, you could come there and people would bring you the, the specimens you needed so you didn't have to go fishing for yourself uh, if you didn't want to. So all this led to uh, 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 an orientation, let's say, more true towards uh, laboratory work, evolutionary morphology, physiology, those type of things, and far less to, to field work. Mm -hmm. um, it was the fishermen who, who would go out fishing for the scientists uh, and occasionally, uh, some people would be uh, uh, would, would would join them, 
But most of the time, people would just work inside when they came there. They, they would come for a few weeks. Also, in this time period, there was a lot of publication pressure, so they would work on their on their publication uh, and don't spend too much time uh, in the field. And this was also a complaint of Dorn himself, right? He, he would have wanted them to uh, to spend more time outside. But what I try to show in the chapter is that the, the choices he made in terms of architecture, in terms of how he ran the station, uh, that this worked against uh, people uh, doing a lot of field work there. That's right. Um, and the chapter actually really nicely talks about this in the context of the various kinds of landscape that emerged out of this place-based research station, right? So it's not just a kind of geographical or natural landscape. It's also a social and a moral landscape that's being created at any one of these sites. And this particular social and moral landscape that Dorn is creating is, as you say, really undermining um, an effort to get um, people into the field by being really controlling about access to um, certain kinds of space and access to the specimen. It's a really, really interesting part of this chapter. And you talk about this um, in the in terms of a normative landscape. So I just want to mention that for listeners. Now, as we move from here to the next chapter, we move to the next site. And this is in many ways very, very different. Um, and it's a really nice comparative point um, for understanding the, the range of kinds of biological field stations. So chapter three looks at a very different kind of station. This is a small rented chalet on the beach in France. Now this station was a marine lab of a French zoology professor. This is Alfred Giard and his students and friends. And he was very, very different in terms of his conception for this site and how he ran the actual station. So can you say um, for us a little bit about him? Um, how, who is he and how is he coming to a decision to have this field station and to have this field station in this place in particular? Yes, so um, uh, you're right. So the, 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 the station that he set up, which is in, in Vimereux, which is in northern France, uh, turned out to be something completely different than what Dorn had in mind. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, what when when you look at the original idea, the original program he had for for this station, it was actually quite similar. So also Gia was uh, trained in uh, in in a sort of general biology. Also Gia was interested in evolution theory. Uh, and he also had a very broad and ambitious plan for his for his station. Now he, the, the scale of his station was was completely different. So as you said, it was a chalet on the beach. Uh, and when you look at at pictures of the, the inside of this chalet, it's really just one room. There's no running water. Uh, you can work in this room maybe with four people, but then it's really crowded. So um, as a comparison, in, in, in uh, Naples, you could work with, with 50 or 60 people easily. Um, so um, it, it, it's small. It's located um, in a, a hamlet, really. It was sort of fish, fishing uh, village uh, with a few smallish uh, chalets. There wasn't at, at the time when it was founded. Tourism was not really developed at, uh, in in Vimeleur, so it's really a very small, uh, small hamlet. Mm -hmm. um, and what they uh, did is because they had so little uh, equipment, also there was very little funding. Uh, Almost by necessity, they would sort of leave uh, the building uh, and and go on the beach. Now the it's uh, at the the North Sea, so there you do have tides uh, in contrast to in, in the Mediterranean, um, and uh, they would do a lot of observations in the tide pools. They would have there just a few meters away from the um, from the station. Um, GI also had selected the station because it was uh, in a in a landscape that was quite diverse. So you had a smallish river, you had dunes, you had a little forest. So you could do all all kinds of observations uh, really close by. Uh, and because he was he, he was a professor, he was there with his students. He would also really 
push them towards particular topics and and field work was one of what was one thing he he thought particularly important and uh so he could also really convince his students to to do this work whereas dorn in naples uh, he couldn't do that, right? Because he, uh, other people had paid the visitors their entrance to the to the station, so he really did not have any power over what they would research once they were there. But Charles was completely different. He really had a school of of friends and students around him, and he really oriented them towards, um, for instance, the study of. Uh, Parasites and, and all, but all, all kinds of things you could really study really in in the field, mm-hmm. um, or for instance the impact of salt water on the morphology of uh, of particular invertebrates, and then he would study them at different places in this in this small river near to his station. Mm-hmm. Uh, so also here, what you see is that both the landscape but also the social atmosphere that was created in the station was very important for the actual research that, that was done there. Although when you when you look at, at the general program he had when he founded the station, that looks very much like the, like the, the program of Anton Dorn. So it's really uh, not so much a program that, um, that, that led to a particular approach, but more the, the possibilities uh, given by the landscape and also by the by the social atmosphere of of this station. That's right. So Giard is very um, much personally involved in what's happening here, right? And yet the language that's used to describe um, the community at this station, in contradistinction, in strong contradistinction to what we saw um, in Naples, is a language of brotherhood, of family, um, of community. Um, there's a kind of environment of um, asceticism, as you call it, the language of monks. Um, at an abbey is invoked. And so it's a very, very different kind of space. It's much smaller in scale. Um, and you talk about this in the context of an, an effort to get to a sort of older style of natural history, um, but also at the same time to push on the boundaries of what experiment means and what experiment can be. So there is some experimentation happening at this field station, but what experiment means in this context um, is actually quite different, potentially, from what listeners might assume experiments mean and where um, listeners might assume experiments mean as well. And I mention this because this is a really important theme of the book, right? The relationship between these Mm -hmm. field stations in general um, and notions of experiment and experimentalism. So can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yes, um, so it's true. It's an an important uh, theme of the book, and I made it such an important theme because it was such an important theme for the the characters involved as well. So they talk about experiment uh, a lot, Uh, but experiment in the late 19th century is really a contested uh, issue. Um, It has to do with, uh, partially with... uh, um, a conflict, let's say, within the within the life sciences, um, and it has to do with money as well. Um, so what you saw, what you see is in in let's say the mid nineteenth century, particularly in France, uh, there are people who claim that experiment is basically what we still tend to think experiment to be today. Namely, it has to do with manipulation and it is uh, something you do in laboratories. So what an experiment is, is you manipulate uh, and something in a laboratory context and you uh, look at particular variables and how they change because of this manipulation. Um, this is basically what Claude Bernard said uh, that an experiment was. Uh, and he um, he defined it this way also to get funding uh, for for laboratories in France. And so he said, well, there's basically two types of science. One type of science is, is more explicative, and that is the, the type of science that I do, that is physiology, uh, that is lab science, uh, and that's really experimental. Uh, and then you have another type of science, and that is, for instance, zoology, uh, and that is descriptive, uh, and that's something you do in the field. Mm-hmm. 
Now, uh, the zoologists, obviously, uh, they didn't want to be portrayed as second-rate uh, science, so they really claimed that what they did was experimental and that they also needed infrastructure to do this type of experimental science. But they said, well, um, our science uh, is experimental, but an experiment does not necessarily need a laboratory and it does not necessarily need manipulation. If you uh, situate yourself in nature, you can witness the experiments performed by nature. And we can, in a sort of controlled uh, environment, if we try to, to, to control the variables in the, in the uh, environment we observe, uh, we don't really have to manipulate anything. We can just see what the, the, the types of experiments that uh, nature performs. But to do so, we should be located in nature itself, and therefore we should have these these stations, because then we can witness the the experiments performed by nature. Um, and this could imply all kinds of things, but it usually for them it uh, meant that you monitor uh, and all kinds of variables in. Uh, in, in a natural setting. And so you look for, for types of landscapes you can easily read, you can easily understand. So for instance, uh, a lake, a relatively small lake that is uh, relatively isolated and that has a relatively limited number of species in it, uh, that can be easily uh, understood as a whole, as a sort of microcosm. Uh, and then you could, for instance, see what the effect of temperature is on the plankton in, in the lake. And then you can describe this as a natural experiment. For instance, it's particularly cold. We see what, what is happening to the plankton. And then this is seen as a natural experiment. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that is the way they would conceive of experimental research, which, of course, is, is something quite different than or what I think most people would conceive of it uh, today. Now, this research program that Giard and his students and his followers um, are undertaking is something that you're describing in terms of a kind of early ecology, right? So this is a, mm -hmm. an ecological approach, and you talk about his approach in terms of a kind of environmental determinism or an attention to, an attentiveness to environmental determinism. Now, what that is and how that is and the implications of that wound up, uh, wind up being really interesting and important as we move to the next chapter, where you're looking at the ways that these ideas and these methods, um, these ways of looking, as you put it, that Giard and his followers are developing, are traveling and are impacting sites that are well beyond this little chalet, right, on the beach mm -hmm, in France. Mm -hmm. And you specifically talk about the importance of, among other things, their approach uh, of, toward environmental determinism with regard to the ideology of the Third Republic. So mm -hmm. as we move um, further into the story, can you say a little bit about this in terms of the broader political landscape um, that's making these ideas so successful in taking hold and moving beyond this rented chalet? Yes. So um, what Gia really was studying is how uh, uh, individuals relate to the, to the environment in which they live. Um, so individual invertebrates in his case, but uh, the, the Third Republic was, uh, or at least leading politicians in the Third Republic were very um, interested in science. So we're talking about the 1870s, 1880s, uh, more in particular. Uh, and they really believe they can uh, change the individuals of France by changing the environment in which they live. And so they are very, very interested in uh, these studies by people like Xia who are, who are studying, um, who are studying invertebrates because they think, well, if we can understand on sort of basic level, how the interaction between environment and individuals work, we can also 
use that on, on, a, on a larger political scale, not to change uh, the invertebrates of France, but also to change, uh, for instance, the behavior of the, of, well, of the, of the citizens of, of France. So if, uh, if we want to um, deal with issues such as alcoholism, for instance, or uh, all kinds of degenerations that were uh, perceived in in the third republic um we could learn from from the studies performed in a place such as Vimereux and and make a sort of sociological translation of them so uh, they very much believed that a zoological study could inform well the, the politics really of the, of the third republic and this chapter, chapter four, does a really interesting job of looking at the ways that um, this network, right, of students and followers is able to, through the movement of this very, very particular approach, attitude towards science, right, this way of looking, is able to influence lots of different fields. So the chapter looks at paleontology, what's happening in museums, agronomy, applied fishery, and also some really interesting attention here is paid to psychology. Um, so you talk about comparative or zoological psychology, psychology and also to um, sociology. And the chapter talks a little bit about social ecology um, and the, that notion and how that's related to what we've just been talking about. But as we move through the book, we also move to a few other sites, right, that also deserve our attention. And one of them mm -hmm. is the next site here. Um, this is a lake microcosm. This is a site devoted to freshwater biology um, and to a lake in particular. So this is a really nice transition here in the book because you basically show um, in moving us to this next field site that Giard's marine biology was quite influential on a group of scientists or other um, interested science practicing people, right, who may or may not be mm -hmm. defining themselves as scientists, um, that we can call limnologists, right? These are people who are studying lakes um, and lake ecologies. One of these people in 1891 founded Europe's first station for studying freshwater biology, and this was a man named Otto Zacharias. So can you talk um, to us a little bit about him? Who is he, and why is he interested in setting up a field station? Yes, um, Zacharias, I think, is, is a very uh, interesting uh, person for several reasons. So he, um, he really worked most of his life outside of academia, uh, but was very, had a very strong interest in science. Uh, and he, he started out as a, as a science journalist. Uh, he wanted to set up the, the first Darwinian journal in, in Germany. Now that failed for all kinds of reasons. Um, and then he, uh, Thought so he, as his second mission, really, uh, he wanted to develop uh, freshwater zoology into a real, real scientific type of study. He always referred to it as the Cinderella of zoological research because there was uh, no academic attention for it, it was seen as something for. Um, for amateurs, really, for uh, aquarium lovers, but not for real, uh, real academic scientists. So he really wanted to to develop this this uh, science, um, but he, um, he he found it really hard to find academic interest for it. So he looked for all kinds of other coalitions, partially in the world of of uh, amateurs, also partially. Uh, in, in the world of, of, of fisheries um, and eventually he found money to, to set up a relatively small uh, freshwater station um, in um, northern, northern Germany in a region where you have all kinds of different lakes so also he selected his site very um, um, with, with a lot of attention, so it, it was in a uh, in an area where you had smallish lakes, deep lakes, uh, uh, big uh, lakes, all, all kinds of different uh, ponds, and so on. Uh, so again, that he would have a great diversity of what he would call natural laboratories uh, to work with, and then he would uh, try to attract uh, partially those amateurs that were interested in. 
uh, freshwater zoology, but also he wanted to involve uh, academic researchers. Um, and that's also why he um, selected the site that was close to Kiel University. And Kiel is a, a place where early ecology was really uh, relatively well developed. So his idea was that also those people would, would come to, uh, to his station. But yeah, it was a sort of continuous struggle to convince, uh, let's say, the more prestigious scientists that this approach was uh, worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a really interesting attentiveness in this chapter to how important and the ways that this was important, um, the interaction between people who had more academic training and amateurs and practical naturalists was for the functioning of this station. And so are there any particular ways that the station is functioning here that were especially shaped by this um, overlap and this interaction between these ostensibly different kinds of researchers? Uh, Yes, I think so. So, um, um, would say that that um, the the amateur tradition was more of a sort of qualitative research, whereas the the people that were brought in early on with a more academic background really had an interest in in quanti- quantification, for instance, of of plankton, and so the both were were merged to a certain extent in this uh, in this station, and uh, eventually. You would also see that this station, although it was after Zacharias' death, so he couldn't really uh, witness that, uh, it would be taken over by more uh, academically oriented uh, scientists. That's also something you see in several cases that they were actually initiated by uh, people with a more amateur background, but that eventually when when it uh, research developed there that universities or uh, all kinds of institutes would take over these stations. And that's also what what happened in uh, Plön, the station of of Zacharias. And this is also a really interesting transition point because the guy who took over after Zacharias died um, is a distant relative, right? He was a limnologist that was a distant relative of the guy who's going to found the observatory that we're going to talk about next. So as we move from, uh, <laughs> right, uh, like the death uh-huh. of one um, founder to the emergence of another, and um, we move to birds. And this is a fascinating chapter. This is chapter six. It turns our attention to ornithology. So we move out of the seas and out of the ponds and into the skies. Now here we're going to look closely at the history of an ornithological observatory in East Prussia. And this is an observatory that's founded in 1901 by the distant relative of the guy who took over after Zacharias died, right? And this Mm -hmm. guy is super fascinating. He is a hunter, a naturalist, a minister, definitely not your average run-of-the-mill academic (laughs) scientist, and um, he deserves probably his own book. So can you introduce (laughs) him for us um, because he's so fascinating? Yes, he's he's an intriguing person. So, uh, yeah, his name is Johannes Tienemann, uh, and he um, has this uh, strong fascination for for birds. Um, And because of this fascination, he decides to moved to a place very much at the margins of the uh, Prussian uh, of, of Prussia uh, in, in a region that is now in, 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 in present-day uh, Russia, um, Rositen. Um, and it's really a sort of outpost. Um, and the reason he moves there is because there's, there's a, a, a peninsula which... Uh, is uh, very important for migratory routes. It serves as a sort of bottleneck for uh, birds migrating from Russia uh, and uh, the Far East to um, um, to Southern Europe and to, to Africa. And he thought this would be an ideal place to study, well, the whole mechanism of, of uh, migration. He called this the great migration experiment. So he also used... This, this term of experimental, or you also wanted to have this aura of experimentalism. Um, but he, um, yeah, he, he 
he was very much a hunter and and also um, well a, a practical naturalist if you want. Um, and that was certainly not um, atypical for ornithologists. Ornithology was really as as a discipline. Uh, somewhat separate from from the rest of biology it was performed by a different type of uh, researchers um, and and Tineman was one one of these uh, typical ornithologists I would say so um, interested um, in uh, migration but also in the height of, of 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 birds flight the speed with which they fly uh, the type of things they eat uh, th those type of issues, and he um, developed all kinds of research practices to um, to study these. And he, he particularly used the landscape of Rositen as a way to uh, understand all these things: migration, the speed of flight, and so on. So he uh, developed things he also would uh, call experiments. Again, we wouldn't consider them real experiments today. Um, to, to study all those things and particularly uh, particularly bird migration. So he uh, was the one not to invent but to really develop bird banding. Mm -hmm. So they would uh, catch birds in Rosetten and release them uh, with bands or rings around their feet and then uh, they hoped they would return or people would send the rings back to Rosetten, which they did in, in large numbers. So for instance, they could retrace the stork uh, or they, they could trace the stork migration to, to southern Africa mm -hmm. uh, in, in this way. So they developed all kinds of these, let's say, low-tech tools to study uh, bird migration from this one particular place uh, in East Prussia. So now that we're talking about birds, my cat just came into the room, so <laughs> I, uh, it's not impossible. She's going to want to get in on this conversation, so um, so we'll see what happens. Okay, okay. But this, so this guy, um, Tinaman, is fascinating. He knows how to write for a wide audience, and he's quite—he's mm -hmm. got quite the personality when he does so, right? So um, you describe some of that writing. Um, in this chapter, um, including his description of something called the Kentucky Club, in which, <laughs> right, to become uh -huh. president, one needed to, this is a quote, have received at least one shot wound and then healed without medical assistance. So there's this kind of, <laughs> yeah. kind of funny, right, but kind of machismo, yeah, yeah. like, involved yeah, 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 here. Yeah, yeah. There's this sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. masculinity um, that we're, we're also going to see, actually, um, coming through in the next chapter, right? When we yeah, I, I think, in a sense, it's... It's, it's difficult for for these field stations, or at least for many of them, that you do have this this very strongly gendered yeah. uh, uh, self image of the people uh, working there. Definitely. Um, but one of the other really interesting things that's happening in this chapter, it's something that echoes, again, what's happening in the chapter before and what's, um, I think, a, a prevailing theme throughout the book in different ways. And this is the importance of amateurs and sort of practical naturalists. So you describe the importance of what's going on here um, in uh, this Ornithological Observation Institute or, or station as a civic enterprise, right? The research mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. relying here on mobilizing a large network, and this is a network largely of amateurs. So can you talk about the significance of understanding this as a civic um, enterprise here? Yes, yes. So uh, this really is, is uh, um, something that is organized by... Um, people that come from outside of academia, that come from outside of uh, uh, government institutions, um, but that come from the world of, of natural history societies or ornithological societies um, or fishery societies or all, all those, those kinds of, well, indeed, civic uh, organizations. Um, and... I think it ties in with, with a literature that that sees this 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 time period, this this late nineteenth century period, not only as a period of of professionalization, but also as something which is called amateurization. It's really the rise of the amateur, and that sort of developed alongside uh, professional science. And in a sense, you see both interact uh, in various ways in these different 
field stations. For some field stations, um, it was more strongly led by uh, professional scientists who worked with amateurs in, 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 in a particular way. In other uh, field stations, as for instance, the, the one of Tienemann, it's really the amateurs who, who set up the, the station and then eventually you see the whole enterprise uh, professionalized because also that's what happened what happened in Rositen. eventually it was also taken over by uh, academically trained uh, biologists who had slightly different interests and a slightly different way of, of uh, presenting themselves uh, so they wouldn't have the the Kentucky Club for instance uh, they would also wear slightly different clothes so you, you also see this this uh, distinction professional amateur it's it's uh, something that uh, is is important for the time period, but it's also continuously uh, challenged. And one of the places where that happens is uh, is those field stations. And this kind of um, this figure of this masculine explorer, right? So going into mm-hmm. the field and getting shot and healing without any doctors getting in the way, <laughs> and you know that's yeah, yeah. Uh, this sort of ethos of exploration, right? This kind of the manliness of ecological research, um, so to speak, is very much something that we see coming out of some of the work um, that's featured in Chapter Seven as well. Now, this is a chapter that brings us to a different kind of context, and it brings us to Brussels specifically. This chapter considers how field stations really changed what was happening in museums in the early 20th century and vice versa, how they were shaped by what was happening in museums as well. So the chapter focuses on the Natural History Museum of Brussels, which, as you show here in this chapter, is kind of radically transforming its operations between the 1890s and the 1920s. Now, this museum set up a cluster of field stations. Many of them were very poorly equipped. They weren't meant to last. They were meant to be very temporary. Um, But despite this, they were really decisive, as you show in this chapter, in transforming the nature of the museum from a space that was focused on the activities of classification, of exhibition, to something more like an exploration museum, as you put it here. So I'm just going to hit the ball back to you um, and ask you to talk a little bit about this. What are some of the most important ways um, that what's happening here at this Natural History Museum in Brussels um, Mm -hmm. is changing as a result of this relationship? Yeah, yeah, I think you summarized it very well. <laughs> I'm <laughs> so drawing what, what on the, your summary, right? I'm drawing on your summary. Uh, so, so what they would traditionally do is is um, collect things in the field, bring them to to Brussels, uh, and classify them in in taxonomic orders. For it, it's you know basically the what you still see in some. Uh, older natural history museums today, like en- endless galleries of butterflies or beetles or uh, stones, um, where they are neatly ordered in, in categories. Um, and also the idea was that ideally you would have everything from the entire world. So you would, um, which also meant that you would buy a lot of things from people you didn't really know uh, and, and that the people in the field were, weren't usually uh, connected to the museum. So the, 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 the curators of the museum wouldn't do uh, field work. Um, now, this uh, changes towards the late 19th century and they start to say, well, exploration is really important because we need to know uh, the context where the material comes from and we can only trust our own people. So what we want to do is we want to send people to the field who really study the material, uh, so the, the, for instance, the, the animal species in the context where they live. Uh, and then we can also show it to the audience in different ways. So we don't have to show them as taxonomic uh, categories. We can also show them, for instance, uh, in interaction with the things they eat. Uh, and, and so what they developed is what they called an ecological box. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that shows, for instance, a particular beetle with the um, 
um, with the plants it eats and with the nests it uh, makes uh, and, and those type of things. So it shows you something of the, the ecological context from which it comes, but also something about its behavior uh, and so on. So you see that the, the spatial context of the things that are collected become more important and that also the, um, the, the field work uh, is, is gaining prestige. So it's the director of the Natural History Museum himself would go uh, on field work, which was uh, unthinkable in, in the early 19th century in Brussels. So that really is a, is a huge uh, transformation. And, and of course, for, for organizing this, they uh, wanted to have all kinds of field stations. So they had a marine station, sort of small one, uh, a freshwater station. They would have what they would call mobile uh, terrestrial uh, stations. So they had, they had all, all, all these uh, infrastructure. Of course, they didn't have money <laughs> or <laughs> they didn't have a lot of money to equip them very well. Uh, but uh, at, at least that, that was the, the ideal they were striving for. So they wanted to be an exploration museum. That's what they call, that's what they called it themselves. Now, as we come here to the end of the book and our conversation, I think it's useful to go back to the beginning. Um, now, after now that we've heard um, at least a little bit about all of these really fascinating case studies, and we have some understanding of some of the major threads that are running through all of them, right? The importance of a, a notion of experimentalism, the importance of networking, um, among other things. This is all framed, and perhaps we can more, um, and listeners can better appreciate the way this is framed now, within an idea that you introduce right at the very beginning of the book of a station movement in this period. So mm -hmm. I'd like to kind of maybe bring this to a close by asking you to talk a little bit about that. What is, um, for you, what is a station movement here, and, and what's um, useful or important or informative in thinking about what's happening here in terms of a movement? Yeah, uh, so so I used the term as a sort of equivalent to or an, 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 or in opposition to the laboratory movement of which uh, uh, one has, has written a lot, uh, and uh, the laboratory movement obviously wanted to was was a, a group of people who wanted or defended the creation of laboratories. Uh, in the mid-19th century. And what these people involved with the station movement do is they claim that it's really important to study nature in nature itself, uh, that you have to locate yourself in nature in order to understand nature in all its complexities. But laboratories won't do because laboratories only give a simplified version of nature. And so that you really have to locate yourself in the landscape that you uh, want to understand, that you want to study. Um, and that's really the sort of core idea uh, of this movement, that you uh, really have to understand a particular place in all its complexity and, in, and, and to understand all the interactions between organisms in this particular place uh, if you really want to understand nature. Uh, and in laboratory contexts, you can understand uh, particular things because you have a, a, a good controlled uh, environment but you according to the people uh, that are uh, driving this this station movement you will never understand the, the complete complexity and if you want to understand that and if you want to understand the interactions of animals with each other and with their environment you really have to locate yourself in uh, nature and part of the main claims of the book is that uh, for this reason, uh, these these field stations were also crucial places for the early development of, of ecology in, in Europe. And what it meant, as you show um, in the book, to be in nature was itself interesting, right? I mean, there's sort of the, a lot of these stations, being in nature means being in a context where um, agriculture and fishing and hunting and tourism are very much a part of the landscape, right? And it's sort of indis indispensable um, in understanding nature to understand um, what's happening in terms of um, you know, these industries, which are very much part of what it means to be in nature. 
So now that we're at the end of our conversation, um, is it, it's an extraordinarily rich book, right? We could have talked, um, and I think we talked about this at the very beginning before we started recording, we could have talked for easily an hour about any of these chapters. Um, so there's, of course, a lot we didn't have a chance to get to. Is there anything in particular, though, that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh, no, I'm okay with uh, the topics we addressed. <laughs> and now that the book is out, and congratulations on the uh, book. Thanks. It's a fascinating book. What's next for you? What are you currently working on? Um, now I'm working on uh, the role of science in international conservation. So I'm uh, working on uh, international conservation organizations, particularly in the interwar years and the 1950s. Uh, and which role scientists really gave themselves in those organizations. So that's uh, what I'm exploring at the moment. Wonderful. Well, best of luck with that work as well. And I'll look forward to reading that book when it comes out also. <laughs> and thank you. Thank you again. Um, it's really been a pleasure. And thanks for making the time. Thanks to you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.